It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 30, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. For more than 20 years, Mushroom Mountain's Trad Cotter has been working to think like a mushroom as he worked to build a business based on his mycological adventures. Since 1996, South Carolina's Mushroom Mountain has produced edible mushrooms and served as a laboratory for Trad's explorations into the use of mushrooms for everything from mycoremediation to personalized antibiotics. Trad and I explore low-tech and no-tech strategies for growing mushrooms, including the fundamentals of mushroom production and strategies for fitting mushrooms into a vegetable operation. We also get into the psychology and physiology of the fungal kingdom. Trad is a true mushroom evangelist, and this episode provides some great insights into the exciting potential of mushrooms for a farm and for the planet. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I have. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software has a customizable management system to meet your farm's specific needs. CSAManagementSoftware.com. Trad Cotter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. Glad to be here. You were talking at one of the conferences that I attended out in North Carolina this year. And, and I was, you know, I was like, oh yeah, you know, it was snowing. And I was like, oh, it's just, you know, it's going to be another workshop about mushrooms. In fact, I think you were punting for somebody that didn't show up mm-hmm. and, and you, you put up this photograph of this bright pink oyster mushroom. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I sat up straight and started paying attention at that point. Can you tell us how do pink mushrooms fit into what's going on now at Mushroom Mountain? Well, we, um, I mean, we're, Mushroom Mountain's um, growing at the point. Yeah, it's mushrooming, right? Um, there's a lot of cheap jokes coming up. And pink, we like cheap jokes. Oh, yeah. They're, they're sustainable. <laughs> they're green. <laughs> you can recycle them. You know, some of you got to compost, but good, good cheap jokes are recyclable. Um, well, and we're vegetable farmers, so, you know, Good. let us make some cheap jokes because yeah. uh, you just can't beat them. No, 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 no. B-E-E-T. And so pink mushrooms, we have uh, we have over 200 mushroom strains in our, our library, mushroom species, and uh, the pink oyster is one of them. And it's one of those that probably would make you kind of wake up um, during a during a lecture because it's, it's just, uh, it doesn't look real. And, and some people will say, well, how did you make that mushroom that way or that color? I'm like, no, that's pretty much the species. That's the, it's genetically predispositioned to, to turn that color. And, um, that's, that's its genetics. Uh, they are, it's a wonderful mushroom that tastes kind of like seafood. And, uh, we, we like to saute it and make chowder out of it, put it in potato, like a potato cream soup. It's just wonderful. And it's, it's one of the easiest mushrooms to grow. So if anybody listening wants to grow mushrooms, uh, the whole oyster mushroom class is super easy. The pink one fruits in like 10 days from the minute you mix stuff together. So if you have a, if you're a, have a problem with patience and, and waiting, the pink oyster mushroom is definitely the one to get. And it's a big hit around Valentine's Day and Mother's Day too. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like, I like the Valentine's day, the mushrooms, that would be a true love sort of a gift there. Well, I have, I have a cheap, uh, cheap shot for Valentine's day. Anyone who's listening because, uh, I didn't have any ideas like most guys for Valentine's day, um, a couple of years ago. And so I found for Olga, you know, and, uh, my wife, Olga, she's, 
Um, she doesn't like uh, cut flowers, so I always try to get her living plants. Well, one year I found this uh, wreath that was shaped like a heart. You know, there's a wheat straw wreath. But they, yes. sell it, they sell those at hobby stores. And I'm, I was thinking, I'm like, wow, you know, oyster mushrooms grow on straw. And here's a heart-shaped wreath. So I hid it from her, and I soaked it in the hot water um, back in, like in January one year, and then soaked in the hot water, then added the pink oyster mushroom spawn. And I put it in the bag, and I hid it in the lab. And then right before Valentine's Day, I, I tried to time it perfectly. It was only like a day or two off. Um, I hung it up in the in the greenhouse, and it was a it was a heart shaped wreath with pink oyster mushrooms growing all over it. It was absolutely beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was, it, that was the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> well, that, oh, that's great. It actually feels like the top of the barrel to me. Yeah. That's really trad. I mean, this is this is what really interests me about your business. Is it's not just about farming mushrooms, although I think you're doing that as well, mm-hmm. but it's, it's this bigger picture. You mentioned 200 strains uh, that you have in your lab and lab's not exactly something that we're used to thinking about when we think about organic farms. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you, can you tell us a little bit about mushroom? I keep wanting to say magic mountain mushrooms, but I know that I'm not supposed to do that. It's, it's just mushroom mountain. Um, can you tell us about mushroom mountain what exactly do you guys do out there? That's that's the problem with trying to describe us at the moment. Um, we are, I mean, classically, I was trained in um, mushroom cultivation. And um, right now we've just moved to a new facility. We're in the process of buying this property and it has 42,000 square feet of warehouse space. And it, it's a lot. I mean, this is a, a big undertaking. Now, I don't... I think I'm I'm less passionate about just churning out and cranking out mushroom production. You know, anybody can do that. I'm fascinated with the research. So, but we need to sell mushrooms to pay for the research. So, currently we're producing about 300 pounds of mushrooms a week, and we're scaling up to do about 600 pounds by, I think, two weeks from now, and then three weeks later than that, we're up to 2,000 pounds a week. And Holy cow. How? <laughs> well, the, the, going back to the laboratory, the lab is like, uh, it's a sterile, super sterile room. Uh, Olga and I spent a lot of money on it um, to do it right. And it's it's a sterile, um, sterile air uh, room, and you go in there with scrubs. And then all you do is just to, to make that many mushrooms, you think of it like a bread culture. You know, you can just keep dividing it and kneading in fresh flour and, and water, and you just keep expanding it. So in the lab, all we do is feed the mushrooms. And as long as you're feeding a culture, it gets bigger and bigger, and it never fruits. So what we do is just in these bags and, and these sterilized bags and jars and everything, we, we expand the culture uh, as much as we can, as much as we want, and then, um, and then we make the decision to send it to the fruiting room, and it never comes back. So inside this little nursery, you could call it, and in the lab is where we maintain the cultures. We, uh, you know, keep them in the fridge. Whenever we need them, we pull them out, and then we'll just expand it. And and honestly, from if you told me like right now, um, you to to grow as many oyster mushrooms as I could, theoretically, from one petri plate that I have in the lab, if I pulled it out today, and I expanded it as much as I could in 11 weeks, I could grow a million pounds of mushrooms a week. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's like, um, I mean, that's like these old stories about, about how, you you know, an E. coli bacteria multiplying could take over the whole world in like a week. I mean, really? Yeah, that's true. And, uh, 
So my job is actually throttling that. You know, we don't need a million pounds a week. I mean, I wish I could sell that much, but um, I think our goal is to try to make, even though we have this facility now, and um, my goal is to make ends meet and to, um, you know, use some of that cash to, to kind of keep it circular. In other words, to pay for the research, to hire uh, employees and students to, to work here. Um, I, I see this place and a lot of other people do too. These are other people's words, like a, like a mushroom camp, like a Google campus for fungi. You know, we've got, we want, and I want to explore the fungal kingdom like no one else has ever done. And, you know, Google did that with uh, the internet and Apple's done that with computers, but I, I want, I want mushroom mountain to be the mushroom campus on the planet. And right, we have the facility now. I mean, we've got the space to make, to make it happen. And, you know, we, we're fruiting all these wonderful mushrooms out for the area markets. And we've got all this amazing research that's going on here. And I think that's what gets me excited every morning is um, not only just walking in the fruiting room, that never gets old. I mean, I've been doing this for 22 years. And walking into the fruiting room is always just, it's just amazing because they grow so fast. They double in size every day, sometimes triple. And it, plants don't do that. You know? No, no way. And, and so it never gets monotonous. You know, I, I think, you know, I'm not picking on the vegetable farmers, but they might understand, you know, you just plant a row of tomatoes or corn or something like that. And it's just like an act, you know, you just kind of do it and then you pick your fruit. And, but with mushrooms, it's, it's kind of a bonding experience because you, when you grow mushrooms, you take it from this culture and then you watch it colonize something and then it fruits so in a way, you kind of, in a strange way, you kind of bond with the fungi because it happens so fast. So that's what, that's what well, I like it, to do here. It, and it's something you've, you've talked about and written about. Uh, and I certainly got the sense when I watched you speak about mushrooms mm -hmm. was, was that you really, you're able to kind of, I want to say, get inside the mushroom's head. I mean, you, you, you actually have an article called uh, How I Learned to Think Like a Mushroom. And it's, I mean, and it's really apparent that you, you get this kingdom at a, at a really deep level that it really resonates with you. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I, you know, started college and then stopped for a while and then had to go back to finish a degree in microbiology. And, and when I came back to school, you know, I was older, I was in my late thirties and I talked to this advisor and he said, he was, you know, they're mostly bacteriology, you know, all bacteria. And uh, this advisor said, listen, you know, I, you know, the, the best way to study bacteria is to think like a bacteria. And I said, well, coincidence, because I grow mushrooms and I think like a mushroom. So it was kind of like the, you know, the, the peanut butter and the chocolate, <laughs> you know, colliding yeah. and everything started to click and, you know, fungi and bacteria and all these other kingdoms. So when you, when you kind of put yourself um, inside this organism, which is very animal-like and fungi are, you know, they create heat, they produce carbon dioxide and they sweat water and they have, they use enzymes to digest. And that's very, that's, that's an animal turned inside out. You know, their stomachs are on the outside. So it's not very difficult to, to kind of put yourself in that position of being, uh, consuming things and colonizing uh, once, once mushrooms colonize a, 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 their territory, they mine the resources 
You know, doesn't it sound human-like? Sounds very familiar. Yeah, they colonize, they attack, they're predatory, they're opportunistic. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's very difficult for me unless I'm messed up in the head, you know, where, you know, you, they're somewhat militant and, um, I just, I love thinking like a fungus because every mushroom that we meet or we culture, like, as I like to say, um, that we pull from the woods and we'll, you know, clone them or culture them so we can grow more. Everyone's different. Every single species and even strain is different. So I have to get to know it. You know, I have to feed it things in the lab. I have to, uh, it's like inviting people over to dinner that you don't know. You know how frustrating that is. You know, yeah. is that person, do they eat meat? Is it a vegetarian? Well, fungi are kind of the same way. So I just set up these buffets in the lab and I just kind of see what they do. Um, and then I try to use some intuition and say, well, now that I know that, I think it can do this, you know, and that, that really does work. And, and I think that's one of those things I write about in the book is tr- trying to get inside of, uh, of that chemical consciousness, consciousness that fungi use because they do make decisions. Um, and it's just short, you know, it's one chapter short of being called mushroom psychology, <laughs> which, which I did write about. We, we deleted that chapter when we edited the book, there was a chapter on mushroom psychology. I may put it back in. I think you should put it back in just for the title alone. Oh yeah. Um, I think it's cool. You know, and so I, I, I've always, I mean, I've always been fascinated with, with the world of mushrooms. I mean, it's always something that, that felt like a, another step beyond what I've done as a vegetable farmer, but I've always also been a little bit intimidated by, by I, I think it's exactly what you said. It's, it's, they're not vegetables, mm-hmm. you know, they're not animals. It's this, it's this weird little thing that's kind of off there on its own. How, how does somebody how does somebody get started in in mushroom farming? I mean, how do you how how would somebody who's got a vegetable operation and says, you know, I would like to I'd like to do I'd like to add a little bit of diversity. I'd like to have uh, something that I'm I'm able to produce in a in a more stable environment. How how would somebody jump into this? Well, you know, training wheels mushrooms first, and I write about it a lot. You know, at the um, kind of the beginning chapters of the book, I see. You know, there's 30 mushroom species in this book I talk about, but the the range of difficulty varies. And the 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 thing about, um, I guess, the human psyche right now is nobody wants failure, and everybody's uh, wants to wants the easy button. And you gotta you got to um, pick those mushroom strains, like oyster mushrooms, on uh, straw or agricultural waste. Well, see right there, that's an, that's an in for farmers who have or are already growing crops that might want to sun dry their vegetation. And I ask this all the time in crowds, um, at lectures, I say, you know, well, who are farmers here? And a bunch of hands go up and I'm like, well, who, who grows corn and squash and a bunch of hands go up. And I'm like, well, what do you do with the waste at the end of the year? And there, everyone says, well, we just compost it. And I look at them and I say, well, what do mushrooms do? You know, after, this is later on. And like, they're like, well, they compost, don't they? So there's an opportunity to take some of that waste, uh, sun dry it, and then, you know, put it in some hot water, mix a mushroom culture in, and grow oyster mushrooms on the waste that farmers are producing. And that's a nice circular system that I think every farmer should agree um, and try is, is to, you know, just get some mushroom, oyster mushroom spawn, 
uh, sun dry some of your vegetation this fall and, and you know, shred it up and then soak it in hot water for two hours and add your oyster spawn and see what happens. So that's, so, the, so that's you, the easy way in. So you're talking about, um, I mean, you're talking about vegetable waste, not just, I mean, I always think of like oyster mushrooms and oat straw as yeah, going together, sure. but I mean, I don't grow oats. I, you know, I grow tomatoes and carrots. So, I mean, if I took my, if I took my carrot tops and spread them out on a, on a concrete pad and let them dry to a crisp and, mm-hmm. and stare, you know, soaked them and sterilized them and put mushroom spawn on them, I get mushrooms out of that. You, you, you could. And the, the biggest, um, growing mushrooms is like cooking. Okay. So the carbon to nitrogen ratio is one thing you want to be aware of. So you might just have to mix mix in, you know, different things and find the right formula, but it's generally 12 to one or 10 to one carbon to nitrogen. Okay. So yes, you could grow it on the carrot tops or, um, the, uh, the squash waste and things like that, but it just needs to be some super sun dried and crispy. Like we talked about, otherwise the bacteria will win, you know, no, no green foliage. And that's another thing that I've always found a little bit intimidating about, about mushrooms is, I mean, you're talking about having a lab. Now, I don't think, I mean, you, your average farmer doesn't have that. No. So it really is a process of, of sterilizing outside of the lab. Yeah, it's pasteurization at that point. And that's what okay. uh, oyster mushrooms are extremely lenient and selective for that. They, they prefer to grow in that environment. So it's very easy for farmers to do that. Um, open air inoculations. We, we still do it here. Even at our place, we, we boil stuff in barrels, we pull it out, and we spawn it and bag it. And we get really, really good luck, very low contamination rates. And that, that should tell everybody that you don't need anything that's super high-tech. Um, and we have the high-tech machinery here. It just It's just because of the lab and the research we do. Um, I, I write a lot about low-tech and no-tech spawn production uh, techniques, you know, how to you know, clone mushrooms with cardboard, how to try to perpetuate that spawn. If you do buy spawn, how can you make it go further? You know, that's the economics of it. Uh, I mean, I, I produce spawn and I'm trying to teach people how to, you know, the best way to, the best way to use it as if it were me buying the spawn, right? Thinking that, right. that yeah, of course I'm going to try to, you know, perpetuate it or, or seed save in a way where I don't have to buy that again. And in a sixth sense, I'm trying to put myself out of the spawn business <laughs> um, by teaching that. But I want more people to learn how to grow their mushrooms. You know, we're, we're at the point where we're doing a lot of other things. And so I, I love the mushroom business and the spawn business. But I, I really want people to learn how to grow their own mushrooms. And it's, no, it's so much easier than growing tomatoes. Anybody that's listening, good grief. I mean, they, they are easy. So, so walk me through... I mean, let's let's take oyster mushrooms. So, if I decided tomorrow that I was going to become an oyster mushroom farmer, sure. um, what are the what are the steps involved in actually growing an oyster mushroom from from start to finish? Okay. Well, first you need to have a, a feedstock mushroom. Oyster mushrooms eat, you know, or, um, agricultural waste, like we talked about. Uh, um, mostly carbons. Um, they use a little bit of nitrogen, like I said, 10 to one, 12 to one carbon to nitrogen. So you have that, um, spawn is another thing. So you just need some spawn. And what I would do is start some small trials. In other words, do, do maybe a couple bags a week 
and um, mix the spawn with the cooked. Uh, you, you take your shredded agricultural waste, and all you do is dunk it in hot water, like 165 pasteurized for two hours, pull it out, let it cool, and you mix the spawn in, and you put it into uh, bags or containers and poke some holes, and then they come out of the holes in probably uh, as little as two weeks, sometimes three or four weeks. So within a month, you're going to get results. And you're not talking about highly controlled environments. I mean, this isn't something that I'm doing yeah. in a in a in a perfectly 68 degree room or something like that. No, and uh, I've grown in greenhouses before with with shade. Mushrooms don't like intense, direct, bright light. They prefer 85 to 90 percent shade. But you can co co um, cultivate them in in greenhouses. Ideally, you know, um, a room or a garage or a spare place that is essentially can be made into a humidity tent. Um, that's really the, that's really the challenging part is just maintaining that high humidity. And when you really think about it, that's not a challenge. You know, you just put plastic up. Um, I've seen, I've even seen people in the warehouses put a greenhouse inside of a warehouse, you know, the, the little Kwanzaa uh, right. ribs and just hook it up and mushrooms need fresh air. Remember I said they, they create carbon dioxide. They need just, they need fresh air, they need high humidity, and they actually need light. Uh, we use LED lights here, all LEDs because okay. they're low energy, but uh, fluorescent lights work or natural diffuse sunlight. Um, so they really don't need much. I mean, you could you could probably start a small, um, you know, for the market, let's say 30 pounds to 50 pounds a week with, with less than a half a day's worth of work. You know, you could boil a barrel full of this stuff and then, buy a bag of spawn, mix it up, and each bag of spawn should produce 30 to 40 pounds of mushrooms in, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks because they, they flush several times. But if you're producing every week, that's, that's the goal is to just grow a little bit every week and you will get consistent results um, because it takes a couple of weeks for them to colonize. Then they'll fruit. The fruit wants they'll rest for a couple of weeks and then they'll fruit again typically half the yield of the first flush and then they'll rest a couple of weeks and then they'll flush again, the half of the second flush. So I do all this mushroom math and figure out that, Hey, one little bag of, um, uh, shredded straw with spawn and it will produce about, you know, one, one and three quarter pounds per bag. And when you do the economics, you know, well, it only costs me a dollar to make that bag. And I'm producing almost two pounds of mushrooms worth 16 to 20 bucks. So okay. that's, that's what works. You know, I, I, I know it has to work economically at the same time, but it, it really does. And oyster mushrooms are the one to start with. And it sounds like a pretty low labor proposition. It is. Um, it just for a few hours a week, because I mean, unless you're standing there or paying someone to watch the water heat up, um, <laughs> uh, it's super cheap. I mean, it's, it's, you light the barrel, you walk away for two hours. You dunk, you shred and dunk it, you walk away for two hours. And then you come back, you pull it out. You know, so, I mean, overall, I mean, I'm thinking maybe you know, the bagging takes the longest. I mean, it really isn't that bad. Like, say, just a couple of hours a week could, could uh, yield 30 to 40 pounds of mushrooms, $10 a pound. I mean, that's, that's really good math. I would, I guess I would have thought that it would be a lot more intense to get into. Why isn't, why isn't everybody growing mushrooms? 
I think not many people know or just they think it's more complicated. You know, uh, it's really not that bad or they think you need a lot of space. You know, we teach the bag method. I've got some bucket designs in the in the book that are stackable, so you need very little space. Um, I just I just don't think people really know about it or realize how easy it is. And but once they start, I mean, we we our spawn business has grown tremendously in the past year or two, and I think it just has to do with education. You know, this information is getting out; it's not as complicated anymore. Um, there's a lot of experimentation going on and people are posting, you know, all over the internet, how to grow this, how to do that. So I think it's, uh, you know, intellectual, you know, uh, sharing of information. And it seems like something that's, that would be, like you said, pretty compatible with other operations. Cause it's not like you've got, a, a these big peak labor loads at, at one time of the year. It's not like you know, you, you don't have calving season or anything like that with mushrooms. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I'm glad I know. Yeah. We don't have to, yeah, I was going to get, we don't have to castrate mushrooms or do anything. We just, <laughs> we, we can go in there and we pick them <laughs> and there's, there's no PETA laws yet. Um, but I think it's a great opportunity. And when you think about a lot of downtime and, and farmers are like, like accountants during tax season. I mean, you can't, we have friends who are farmers. We don't talk to them. You know, they're, everybody's busy. Um, but in the fall and in the, in the, in the, in the winter, things slow down. And if those farmers were to stockpile, let's say their biomass, uh, let it sun dry. And that gives them the off season to possibly, you know, supplement their income, sell to some restaurants, but they grow so fast. Uh, if they, if you stockpile the biomass and start growing again during the season and you can take fresh mushrooms to sell right next to your tomatoes and peppers at the market. Uh, and that's what we do when we go to the, the market down here in Greenville. I mean, we sell out, it starts at eight and we're sold out by 1030. Wow. And we take, oh my God, I can't even, we take like 50 to 80 pounds sometimes down there. Um, and it's just one market, one street market. So I think it's a good opportunity and it, it's diversity. It's just making good use of your organic material. And at the very end, I, the icing on the cake is that, you get a beautiful uh, compost at the end of this because we we worm compost the mushroom mycelium, you know, the leftover blocks in the bags. Uh, we slice them open and then compost them with worms, and we get this beautiful, rich worm-casting soil at the end. Because wow. worm, worms love fungi. I tell people, even if you don't like mushrooms, and trust me, some of my family doesn't, and <laughs> some of your I, family's probably kind of sick of them. Yeah, I pushed it on them. I'm pretty pushy. And, but they, I say, even if you don't like mushrooms, if you grow mushrooms like in the garden, like oyster mushrooms are great on straw. We talked about that. The second one, the training wheels is King Straferia in the, uh, in the garden. So you can actually grow, uh, this one on wood chips or straw in the garden, like in the rows around the plants. And it fruits all up underneath the shady part of the plants, you know, because you're watering in the summer. It fruits the same year. But the, the, what that mushroom does, the King's Trifaria, it's not only edible and good, is it attracts worms from as, as far as 10 feet away. So really? it's, it's uh, an alcohol called octanol, and they will actually vector in worms from up to 10 feet away like a shark can smell blood. And then they come in, they eat the mycelium, of the, which, is the, which is the fungus, 
in the wood chips, and then it deposits the worm castings right where the plants are. So you have this fungus there breaking down the wood chips, uh, making available sugars, and then they invite the worms to the party. Then the worms deposit the castings right where your plants are. So your plants get fertilized for free. So it's a nice it's a nice combination for anybody who you know want to add mushrooms to your garden, even if you don't eat them, um, put them there. Well, it's something I see a lot happening in the permaculture movement right now is that everything that they put out seems to have been inoculated with with some sort of a fungus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're if they're putting a mulch on a on a row of trees or something like that, they're always taking the time to mix in the. Um, Mix in those cultures, mix in the the, the mycelium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's there's saprophytes, which are mushrooms that eat dead material. Okay, um, like king stropheria and oyster mushrooms and shiitake. Those are all eat dead material. Then there's others that are called mycorrhizae, and those grow on the roots. So if you use the two together, I mean, you really don't need fertilizer. I mean, and that's what's killing our water quality in the U.S. is fertilizer and pesticides. So if you've got this beneficial fungi that bond to the plant for life and you do it, uh, you know, you introduce this fungus to them as a seed or when they're very small, it essentially bonds to the roots, the threads into the root system and the, the plant rewards that fungus with carbon and sugar. And in return, the fungus gives the plant nitrogen and phosphate that it goes out in mines in the soil. And it'll just, uh, you know, it'll give up those those plant metabolites, you know, up to 80% of a plant, uh, a plant's energy that it uses from the sun goes into metabolites in the roots to feed the fungi and the bacteria. So we got to take care of the roots of our plants. And, you know, adding fungi to the roots, you know, at, at a very young age, seed to um, uh, seedlings means you don't have to use as much. So it's it's uh, intelligent to use mycorrhizae very sparingly at a young age. Plant them up in a uh, in your on your vegetables, your annuals, um, fruit trees, and then add your you know kingstaferia around the wood chips on top, and everything works synergistically. It's a good system. What other mushrooms are good for people to get started with? The the one we've left out, people are waiting on, is uh, shiitake mushrooms are easy. You know, there's a reason that they've we're one of the first to be grown on logs. They are uh, resilient. They can kind of go, uh, they can dry out a little bit on the logs, rehydrate and keep growing. Uh, and, and they're an omnivore for hard, hardwood. So they can grow on, you know, oak, maple, cherry, beech, ash, you know, elm, poplar, um, even some of the fruit trees. And uh, they, they're very meaty. They're very high in protein. And uh, they dry and rehydrate well, so that's another reason to to grow them. If you grow in a, grow them in abundance, or too many, uh, that you can overproduce and dry and and store those through the winter. Uh, shiitake mushrooms are wonderful, and uh, the whole mushroom, even though the stem is somewhat fibrous, we we we'll cut and cook the caps because they're nice and tender, but the stems are kind of rubbery and and fibrous, and we'll dry those. So they're hard as a rock, and then we'll put those in a blender and make a flour out of them. And we can use that as a breading. Oh, my gosh, it's good. I actually came home from that, that conference in North Carolina and, and tried that. It was, it was really something. Yeah, it, and when we tell that story at the market, and, and I like to interact and 
especially me and our employees, I we, we like to talk to people coming up to the booth and offer recipe uh, ideas because that's part of selling and um, the mushroom is to get the consumers to know, you know, how do I use this? I'm, people come up and they see shiitakes and golden oyster and lobster mushroom and all these different things and they've never had them before. And there's a right and a wrong way to, to cook, you know, just about anything. So we, we try to, to offer that face-to-face, you know, just absolutely free consult. Like, oh, my gosh, you got to try this with uh, uh, a king oyster with butter and a little garlic, and it tastes like scallops, you know? They're like, really? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And they come back the next week, and they're like, you were not kidding. I got to have more, you know? So it's, it's about education and how to, how to use these mushrooms um, will open up a whole new window or world for people who – who want to try something new. Um, my area, I mean, I'm in the conservative South. <laughs> yeah. You're not like in prime organic hippie farmer land down there. Are you? No, not really. I think I'm surrounded by people with torches right now. Uh, <laughs> if, if, the, if the line goes dead, <laughs> um, come and get me. But no, I mean, it's, we have Greenville is a high European demographic because of the, um, BMW plant and Boeing and, you know, there's a lot of um, Michelin, there's a lot of engineers and, and Europeans are more mushroom savvy than Americans, you know, case closed, but Americans are catching up. Um, there's a lot more mushroom clubs around the North American Mycological Association. If you look up that online, uh, you'll find a club near you. And it's a great idea. If you're growing mushrooms, learn about the ones in the woods too. Uh, those are free. You know, you can go out and collect and, you know, I, I, uh, certify for DHEC in the state, the department of health, uh, for, for wild permits for the state. It's, it's the law. Uh, a lot of states don't have it. And a lot of other states have mushroom poisonings, but, um, check with your local state regulations. And if you need a permitting process, you know, you just let me know because we might go to other states with it, but there's, there's a lot of, uh, food out there, chanterelles. I mean, I can go out and pick, uh, 40 to 60 pounds of chanterelles in a day. Well, hell they're, they're $20 a pound. Um, that's how I, one of the, that's one of the first mushrooms I ever identified when I was 20 years old was a chanterelle because I mean, I was sent out into the woods and the chefs needed them. I learned that one first and now I'm teaching classes on it, you know, just learning one at a time. So I think pairing a little bit of mushroom cultivation with some wild harvesting and learning some basic ID is a great, um, well-rounded approach to, for any farmer that, I mean, a lot of farmers listening probably have a wooded area they're not using, you know, put some logs out there, put some, uh, straw kits out there. You can hang them from trees in the winter and grow oyster mushrooms outside. And then you can also harvest mushrooms from the woods that are just growing there naturally. Now that would work in the South where it doesn't get extremely cold in the winter time, right? I'm not going to get, I'm not going to, I don't want to put my oyster mushrooms outdoors here in, uh, in Southern Wisconsin. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there, there, but there are cold strains. Now there's, there's winter cold, um, uh, strains that'll fruit almost all the way, you know, down into the freezing range. So you, you just have to pick your times, maybe early, you know, mid spring, the interface season, so spring and fall. Um, and then you can move, if you make a little uh, cold frame or something where you can just maintain 50 degrees or 45 degrees, you know, just put a little bit of insulation or supplemental heat 
you don't have to get it up to 75 and 80, you know, like pink oyster mushrooms. Like, you know, you can just pick a different strain at the different time of year. And then when the, the, the warm season comes back around, then you just change strains. You buy, you get a different, uh, tropical strain of spawn and you kind of grow with the seasons. And I guess I don't really think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes, I mean, it makes so much sense. I wouldn't, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought from the outside about, about changing the strains of mushrooms throughout the season. I mean, I, we, you do that with lettuce. Um, I don't know why I wouldn't have thought of doing it with mushrooms. Maybe just not really thinking about all of the different strains and that there would be things that are regionally adapted to different heat and humidity regimes. Yeah. And we even do that as a large commercial, uh, you know, I wouldn't say we're large Kennett square and there's some very large monopolistic mushroom farms in the U S but um, we're, we're, I still consider ourselves small, even though we have a lot of things going on. We've got a lot of property, a lot of building space. Um, we're still trying to stay a little bit smaller and just do a little bit more diversity, like low numbers. Um, so we're kind of a mid-range farm here. And we grow seasonally. And that's something that big people don't do. And you know, we, we rotate the strains because I think it's intelligent and also it helps with the pocketbook because, you know, we, yeah, we have every single light in, in this entire facility's LED and we have solar panels to hook up. Um, so we're trying to get that off the grid. But right. Economically, you know, when you look, if you try to grow tropical mushrooms, even down here, not even Wisconsin, but it gets into the teens and 20s. Well, mushrooms need fresh air. So where does the fresh air come from? You know, outside, you're going to pump 20 degree temperature into a fruiting room that wants to be 75 to 80. You know, it doesn't work. So we'll, we will transition out and we're kind of doing it now. Um, And even for our spawn business, we, we, we offer golden and pink oyster and warm blue. And, and then we start to tell people, listen, you know, we're going to stop producing the spawn in a month or two, and we'll pick it back up in, in April because it makes more sense to do that. And then we'll switch to Elm Oyster, which is a cool season and brown, cool season, and then cold blue. So we can turn the AC off. I use very little AC anymore. Um, But to get around all this, what we learned in our greenhouse on a small scale, um, and and this is a lesson for any beginner farmers, is that, you know, don't go big too quick. You know, learn the subtlety of these mushrooms because they grow so fast. you can be successful really fast or you can fail really fast. And, right. and what we've done is, you know, a couple of years ago, Olga and I had a small greenhouse and we tried to grow mushrooms in the winter. Horrible disaster because we, we had, it was dropping down to the teens and nothing was fruiting. So then we decided to put in a propane heater. Okay. We went through a, I think a hundred pound cylinder of propane in a week and economically it didn't make sense. So we just, we just never, filled it back up and Olga and I were talking, you know, we're walking around the greenhouse and we're, how are we going to do this? We really need to grow mushrooms. And then it was just like a light bulb went off. I'm like, I'm like, hello, you know, plants make oxygen, don't they? (laughs) Everybody knows that. So we started adding a lot of plants to the greenhouse, even though we didn't, we weren't really growing them for the market. We were growing them for their oxygen producing capability. So we added a ton of like really cool, cold, hardy plants to our greenhouse. Um, and then we can put, instead of bringing in fresh air that was 20 degrees, 
we could put in a little space heater, tiny one, and we would shut the door and we wouldn't have to bring in fresh air at all. So it's almost like a little lunar module. You know, you've got your plants in there, you've got your fungi and everything's offsetting the gases. Um, and that's how we have it now. And, and, and that's been several years and people come to our farm and they're like, what's with all the plants? And I said, well, they, they look nice, don't they? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> they're like, yeah. I'm like, but let's think about it. And someone says, they're making oxygen. I'm like, of course. And I said, wouldn't you prefer plants and then enclosed and, you know, just, it's funny. Um, and it was just so simple. And I like the idea of enclosed environments, uh, trying to get our farm off the grid. You know, I, we, we do have an initiative here to zero waste and getting totally off the grid here, um, you know, within a year, I would say. We're getting close. And, you know, trying to get fresh oxygen. You know, mushrooms need air, so just be aware of that. Uh, okay. If you're growing, you know, some people say, well, I want to grow in a basement. I said, that's fine, but just understand that mushroom, if you put a lot of mushrooms in a basement, uh, carbon dioxide is heavier than oxygen, so it's going to pool. And if you can visualize carbon dioxide as a liquid, you're basically going to be walking down into pure CO2, right, over your head. Right. So you need to exhaust it. And like, oh, gosh, I can't do that. I was like, well, why don't you just add some ferns, you know, some houseplants in there? You know, and everybody, you know, a lot of people say, well, I never thought of that. And, and it's very simple. Um, and it adds a lot of life to the room. Uh, they like the, the grow lights, you know, the LEDs, totally fine. So I, th I think just using what nature does best and just paying attention. And I'm a big fan of observation. Um, and sometimes that common sense comes later. You know, it's, it's just standing there looking at you and then you're like, oh, gee, that was easy. Well, common sense isn't nearly as common as the name would indicate, I mm. think, you know, and especially when it's when it's something like that, where mm. where we're, you know, we're not used to thinking like a mushroom, mm -hmm. you know, that makes it does. I mean, that that does seem like an obvious solution. But I certainly didn't come to it as you were telling the story. Yeah. Um, interesting. So how how did you get into mushroom production in the first place, Trad. That's a cool story. Um, the introduction of my book plays it out very well, but I'm going to recite it for everybody because it, it's, it's an interesting um, twist of fate because, you know, as I was in school the first time and um, I was down in Charleston and my, I was, went back to live with my parents uh, in the interim, and my mom was, I was taking biology and my mother knew I was like into science. And she goes, you know, there's a mushroom farm out there on John's Island in South Carolina, which is kind of towards Kiowa, nice resort. And she goes, I hear that they uh, grow medicinal mushrooms. Like there's stuff that's good for cancer and, um, and things like that. And I, I mean, this is the first I've ever heard, never really paid attention to mushrooms at all, like zero. Um, I knew what a white button mushroom was, you know, cause you, you get those on salads sometimes Yeah. And, and I really didn't know anything. So I started studying up about mushrooms. I ordered some supplies and my mom was very supportive of me trying to grow like these, uh, white button and maybe portobellos, which are brand new back then. And, uh, in the early nineties and, uh, I called up the farm and I arranged, I talked to this guy and 
it sounded, it was like really loud. Uh, and, and I, and he was shouting on the phone, like, and he goes, yeah, we have tours, you know, you just step on by. So I, I went out there and, um, walked in, I could see he was really busy. There was only like two people working there. And he told me he was growing a thousand pounds of shiitakes a week. And he walked me through the whole process. He only, he only took a few minutes cause he was busy and he walked me, showed me this big sterilizer and it was just spinning and steaming out coming out of it, this little room. And he talked to me about the whole process. Like this is the culture that goes into that machine and then it goes into bags. Then they'll sit in this room for a little while called a colonization room. Then they'll get wheeled into this fruiting room and see, I hadn't seen a mushroom yet. And right. And I do the same thing on my tours. I torture people. <laughs> I talk about the ecology and I talk about the lab. And by the time you hit the fruiting room, you know, you're just drooling, I guess. You're like, Jesus, where are the mushrooms at? You know? Uh, and then I hit the fruiting room and it's foggy and there's mushrooms popping out like these blocks all over these racks and all these different um, spaces and colors. And, and they were all shiitake mushrooms. And I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I've never seen mushrooms growing before. And a lot of people have it. A lot of people have never seen a mushroom farm and you should, if you have one near you tour, ask for a tour. Cause that, I think that will be the trigger to get you excited about it. Um, and then the tour was over and, uh, the, the owner gave me like a, like a little sample bag and, you know, like, Hey, you try some of these and, you know, thanks for coming by. And, but during the tour, I remember I was asking him a lot of questions, you know, like, why does it do this? Why does it do that? Or, or actually making suggestions. And he knew I was a, a biology student. So I got in my car and the tour was over and I was kind of bummed out cause it was just like a high of the day, you know? And yeah. And all my friends were working in you know, card shops and steel mills and, you know, everyone else is flipping burgers and stuff. And I didn't have a job. So I got in the car and getting ready to go back to, uh, you know, teaching part-time like a substitute teacher. And so I jump in the car and I was driving this old Hyundai, you know, <laughs> that kind of sputtered when you cranked it up. And, uh, it was a dirt road and long dirt road. I get in the car, I cranked it up and I start driving down this driveway. I mean, a good 30, 50 yards. And there's this big dust, um, you know, dust cloud behind the car. And I hear this work really loud smack, like a, like a pop. I mean, it was really loud. Like it shook the car and I thought I'd popped a tire. Um, and so I stopped the car and the cloud kind of clears a little bit. And then the owner is standing at my window. I rolled down the window and, uh, apparently he had hit the back of my car with his fist trying to catch me. <laughs> and, you know, this is back before cell phones and pager, you know, right. pagers, right. those are for people who, you know, alternative lifestyle. And so he didn't have my number or anything. And he, I rolled down the window like he was crazy. I'm like, I'm like, what are you doing? And he, he, he's sitting there panting and he's just like, do you want a job? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and I was like, yes. You know, I just, sometimes you don't think. And, uh, I said, yes. I would love to work here. And he goes, well, I can't pay you very much. And I was like, that's fine. I was like, this is amazing. So I stopped teaching, you know, substitute teaching and which is only part time. And I went to work full time at the mushroom farm. And 
So I, I went from knowing nothing to being like the, the put into a position of head grower for the facility, you know, within 48 hours. Wow. And, uh, but I had studied a little bit about it. Um, and, and the funny thing is the, the icing on the cake was had my car and I joke about it all the time. Had I had a nicer car, you know, with a little bit more oomph to it, that guy might not have caught me. <laughs> right. So I want to thank my dad for giving me that Hyundai at this moment, even though I, when he gave it to me, I wasn't excited about it. But now I look back and, and, uh, had that, had I missed or had I've driven away, um, and not received that tap, um, I probably wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing. Uh, I could have went another direction. Uh, I may not have went back to school. I wouldn't have written a book. I wouldn't be helping others realize their dream. And I think that's just profound. I think it's really cool. And I love that story. You know, Trad, you, you mentioned helping others. And I think it's something that really comes out in, in your writing and in your speaking is, is just how much of a true believer you are in the power of mushrooms to feed and to heal the world. Oh yeah. And, and the evidence is there. You know, and I'm, I've been described as a mushroom evangelist and I'll accept that. And, but there, there is a lot of truth and science behind the protein and the uh, medicinal properties of these fungi. So it's not voodoo and it's not snake oil. And I think a lot of products kind of fall, fall into that trap. You know, you see stuff online and you never really know who to believe. Right. Right. I mean, you see, well, cranberries will fight this or pomegranates will do this. And it's a lot of blogging going on. But whenever I open my mouth, I try to base it on the evidence that uh, there are peer reviewed journals and um, mushrooms are uh, a very good source of protein. They're grown very quickly. Uh, there's strains of oyster mushrooms that have adapted to just about everywhere on the planet, you know, except for extreme cold environments. Uh, so they can feed the planet. And, and, and some of the other uh, parallels are that fungi are really good at microremediation, which is the second part of the book. It's, they are good at disassembling things. You know, that's what they do is de they're decomposers. So they decompose a lot of our pollution, a lot of our environmental contaminants that we make. So that's why I give so much support to the fungi is because I know that if people understand how much they do for us and how much, um, what we can do for them, you know, we need to help them help us. And if, if we understand more about fungi, how to grow them and incorporate them more into our landscapes and in our yards or on brownfield sites, they're going to help us out. You know, there's a lot to be learned from the fungal kingdom. We just got to pay attention. And I, I love sharing that information and I love exploring that. Yeah. And that's what our business is about. Well, right. You, you said the business is about selling the mushrooms to fund the research about how to accomplish these other, these other tasks. Right. And, you know, at, at this moment, you know, we're not growing a lot. Sure. I mean, I wish we were growing a little bit more, but if I was to grow a lot more, then it would kind of remove myself from the, you know, research side. And, you know, we're, we're getting ready to ramp up here um, and grow more mushrooms for, for the market to generate additional income. I mean, that's a fact. But this place has been evolving in the same sense where 
you know, it's like panning for gold. We keep, we keep finding stuff out and we chase those ideas. We do these little mini trials on remediation. You know, we've got filtration uh, units that we fill our old biomass with and we run contaminated water through the units, you know, with bacteria, which could become handy in, uh, in other countries as well as here. You know, sure, I've, I put the focus on Haiti because I've been there, and I went there with, with the goal in mind of food and cleaning water. Um, and, and the U.S. has its share of the problems. But, you know, I feel that, you know, there, there's other civilizations on the planet that are in dire need of this help. And I think if we experiment on a small scale, like our company does, of the production uh, and then the filtration using the spent waste, you know, what can we, how can we get the most out of fungi, you know, out of that original culture that you started with? So when, when you talk about this, I mean, the life cycle that you're talking about for the product then becomes that you, you're growing mushrooms, uh, maybe, you know, an edible strain of oysters, for example, on straw that then you're later using as a filtration tool to clean up bacteria in the water. Is that is that an example of, of the kind of process you're talking about? That's right on the head. And so we're using, you know, we're fruiting mushrooms first on the media, and then we can pack it into um, you know, even nursery buckets, you know, the black nursery pots that sometimes landscapers or farmers use. And yes. uh, let those kind of uh, um, gel back together. And then if you run water through them, it becomes a micron filter. You know, it'll trap... Uh, e. coli, and uh, we're working with the university here at Clemson to eventually turn those filters into um, cholera filtration devices because cholera sticks to chitin and mushroom mycelium, or that fungus, is made of chitin. So it's, it's kind of a very simple, what I like to call very romantic, easy <laughs> solution that, just, uh, that we just have to put together. And, it, and it's very primitive and basic and easy, and anybody can do that. So, you know, we were in meetings yesterday with the, with the university here, uh, Clemson Engineering for uh, Developing Countries. And we're working on brand-new mushroom filters that can be taken to Haiti and also possibly to India, where there are tons of herbicides in the water. I mean, you can't even drink the water in some of the wells in India. So everything's polluted and everyone, you know, people that drink the well water are getting sick. So it's a, it's a good opportunity to set up a mushroom, a mushroom farm in every little village that can not only produce mushrooms, but also to generate the waste that can be used by the villagers to purify the water. And so if you're using, if you're using mycelia to pull herbicides out of the water, what happens to the herbicide? I mean, is that then something that, I mean, I wouldn't want to take that and spread that out on my field again, would I? Well, that's the thing is they're not, they're not taking up the herbicide. They are disassembling it. So they're actually cleaning that water and cleaning the straw and everything. You're not left with even the mushrooms that are edible or the fruit off of that media are going to be edible. So, and that's the magic part we've talked about. A lot of people try to call my business magic mountain or magic mushroom, but mushrooms are really magical. They are, um, they have the ability, they have these enzymes, external enzymes that they sweat into the environment and they're like chemical keys 
And if you visualize pesticides like Legos, you know, it's, it's uh, put together in a certain way. These teas that mushrooms produce will, can um, pull these Legos, these molecules apart and make them smaller and smaller and smaller until it's not an herbicide anymore. And then the bacteria get involved and then they break it down into smaller, smaller, smaller. So if you leave fungi and bacteria together, let's say in a puddle of um, herbicide, you know, with the media, if you leave it there for um, 12 weeks, you, you will get herbicide degradation up to 90% in just that amount of time. We are working on systems that can filter herbicides out of water at the tune of 100 gallons a day. And that's enough for a village. That's enough for a very small village, 100 gallons a day um, if it needs to be drinking water. And you, know, you can boil herbicide water, and it's still toxic. But right. if you pour it, and we're trying to figure out the contact time, like how much time does this, that herbicide water need to come into contact or stay, you know, or flow through that spent mushroom waste to, to bring it down to um, safe drinking levels and and all this is ongoing i mean we've got prototypes uh we've got uh the university involved to do the testing and we're doing bean tests and we're they're going to run it through the lc which is a liquid chromatographer and um those are the kind of things that are going on behind the scenes here i, I talk about them openly but it's just one of the that sides of research that mushroom mountain's working on that doesn't pay for itself and I'm happy to do that because I, I want I want these things to happen. And I, I guess, you know, people say, well, you're sure are passionate. Well, sh I'm passionate about people. And I'm lucky enough to have been born here and this time and doing what I'm doing. But, you know, when you visit somewhere like Haiti, you know, your whole, your whole mindset changes. You know, um, there's nothing more important than feeding the people, feeding the planet and giving everybody clean water. Uh, and giving everybody, giving everybody a fair shot, and we, we're all not born that way. But I think mushrooms can help make that happen. Trad, we're going to take a moment here for a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. When you talk to Carl Hammer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job, produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume. When I started farming, I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges that we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave it a second look and I came to the fairly obvious conclusion that success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there and that just like in the rest of farming especially organic farming that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in the cost of your potting soil isn't insignificant but it's a small cost relative to plant material heat and labor and if the media fails the rest of the enterprise is a sunk cost so get the media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants vermontcompost.com the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software is designed from the ground up to manage the CSA you operate from customer sign up right through delivery. 
Farmigo staff will work with you to customize the dashboard for your farm based on the way your CSA works. System setup is free, and the system can be configured for a wide variety of CSA models, from the traditional box plan right through fully modifiable boxes. On the customer side, Farmigo offers a portal for members to sign up, make payments, and access their account to manage vacation holds and site changes, all with the control by the farm over what can be changed and when the changes can be made. On the farmer side, you can send fully customizable confirmation emails and auto responses and generate reports to help you manage everything from harvest and loading the truck right through delivering the CSA shares. And they offer amazing customer support to you at no charge. They'll even call you if you need help. Learn more at csamanagementsoftware.com. And now back to the show with Trad Cotter. You have something that you mentioned in an email to me that that sounded really fascinating, this personalized antibiotic research that you're doing. Yeah, that's that's probably the biggest thing um, that's come out of our lab so far. And, and it's one of those ideas that I, I can't even believe it's happening. You know, it's just um, I get goosebumps and uh, I, I get choked up when I talk about it on stage because it's, it's – um, it's very disruptive. And when, when you look at, if you were to take a poll, let's say of a hundred people on the street, that's not a very good poll, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> let's say you take a hundred, a thousand, uh, a poll of a thousand people. And I want you to, um, say, are you pleased with the, uh, the medical system or your health care? What do you think that, what do you think the results would be? Oh, I'd give you two people that would give you a favorable rating. Right. And it's probably somebody who works for the hospital system or something. That's right. <laughs> and you see right there that that means something's wrong and everybody knows it's wrong, but nobody's talking about it. You know, it's just, we're, 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 we're dealt the cards, we're dealt the hand and, um, it's basically we're, we have to deal with that. You know, that's what we're given. And it, to me, it feels a lot like handouts. You know, and I, I talked about this openly in, in Colorado at the Telluride Mushroom Festival. And I don't like that feeling. I don't like that feeling of not being in control of my own health. Right. And uh, I want to do something about it. So Olga and I had this, uh, I guess, glimmer of hope here or glimmer of light that came through some accidents in the lab. And, you know, I did my fellowship at the EPA working on some research with cancer cells and different things. And so I had to be away from the farm for a week, weeks at a time. And then I would come back here and I would notice that some of my plates were looking good. And some of my Petri plates in the lab were contaminated and that happens. And this was at my old lab, by the way. So it wasn't very clean. Thankfully, <laughs> this is like the Hyundai story. And right. So I noticed on the plate, I, I, I saw a fungus and a, uh, another mold on a plate. I zipped it up and threw it in the trash, and then I went back to the EPA for another week. And then I came back, and I was checking everything, and I was taking out the trash. And I looked inside the trash, and I saw the plates that I had thrown away in a Ziploc bag. And there was a mushroom attacking another fungus. And this was that kind of that territory, territoriality I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation where I've learned that I was watching this, I was looking at it and I started taking pictures. And so I took really nice macro pictures and I watched the progression of this mushroom attack this other mold and completely carpet bombed it with, with uh, metabolites. 
which is the, the fluid, you know, those little chemical keys that you right. saw. And, and it, you know, mushrooms just don't do that. They don't produce this sweat in pure culture. They don't do it. So what I was getting a glimpse of, what I figured out was this is the way it works in nature, right? There's million, uh, one and a half million fungi on the planet. There's a lot more bacteria, and they're all competing for space. And this is more realistic of what's going on. So I showed that to an advisor over at Clemson, and they basically said, uh, I showed them what I was looking at. I interpreted it to them as a possible way of producing novel uh, fungal metabolites that were specific against whatever it was attacking. And there was a bunch of, there was silence in the room. And uh, these are the head of the departments over there. They, they basically said, get out of my office and get a lawyer. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, really? They said, leave, get out of my office, get a lawyer. Uh, I don't want to hear anymore. And they were doing that to protect us. And so I figured out, this is, that was three years ago, that they were right. And I was right. And now we've got this. So, so, so that those first few plates have evolved into, we've created this method. Okay. It's like a vending machine for pharmaceuticals. It's, you know, you've had strep throat. Have you read strep throat, Chris? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, I I almost everybody does. And I use that as an example. So we now know that 98 people are unhappy with the hospital system out of a hundred. And so why do we keep going in there? Cause we have to, right? We get sick. We take the antibiotics. We don't have a choice. Um, if we go in with strep throat, they're going to, uh, give you a culture. They're going to swab it and they're going to give you uh, an antibiotic that's on the market. And chances are everyone else is taking the same thing. Is that a fair answer? Yeah, and I think that is fair. That is fair. And even I've had doctors on tours come through here and agree. And, and the problem is that our health system is treating us like cattle and they are, we're all given the same thing. Well, there's a high degree of, um, mutation happening amongst bacteria creating drug resistance and, you know, antibiotics aren't used all the way or they're misused. So bacteria are becoming drug resistant in two and a half years period with a brand new drug, two and a half years. What well, takes 12 and a half to 15 years to make a new drug or to develop it through the FDA. What, what we've done, which I think is profound. And again, this is, this is just, uh, I think the first experiment was accidental, but now we're pushing it because we understand it, that we have these little bags, these modules where you can take a throat culture or a biopsy from somebody, let's say with a uh, flesh eating bacteria, you can have this little bag anywhere in the world and you inject it through this little port. It goes into the hole. It makes contact with the fungus. It's like the size of a football. And then within 24 to 48 hours, that fungus sweats out, much like it did on the Patriot plate, sweats out hundreds of milliliters of patient-specific antibiotics that can be drawn out of another hole and administered to the patient in 24 to 48 hours. And to me, that seems like the way we need to go. And we're doing it with human pathogens like E. coli, strep, staph, uh, candida and pseudomonas and some others. 
but we're also realizing that it could it could work with agricultural pathogens. So the farmers listening, you know, hey, does anybody listening have uh, a fungal blight or a bacterial blight on their crops? Of course, everyone does. Yeah. And what we're finding is that uh, we've got cultures coming in from these universities where the, they're running out of options, just like the medical industry has. You know, and we're able to produce all these novel metabolites. So it's a huge patent for us. And, um, but again, we're, we're a small company that owns this, I think this fascinating piece of, uh, intellectual property that we're going to try to make available, uh, to the people. And again, you're going back to, well, I am concerned about the state of, uh, the health of everybody on the planet and the water. So, um, we're trying to bring it to the people, you know, we're the, the Robin hood of <laughs> the Robin hood of the medical industry, hopefully. Um, wow. but I don't know where it's going to take us. A lot of people say, you know, man, this is very powerful. Uh, you better get some good help, uh, a lot of money, a lot of help and protection from this because it could, it could totally disrupt, uh, the medical industry and, um, companies that might produce fungicides or herbicides. That's some really fascinating stuff. That's, I mean, that's, that's amazing. I, I still haven't realized how crazy it is, but other, other, um, we've been bombarded by investors and, um, uh, lawyers and, and everybody's seen it and, and everybody's really excited, but they're really nervous at the same time because it, it does work. It's starting to work and nobody wants to see it shelved. So I told them that we'll, we'll take it to the finish line and that's what I want. You know, I, we're kind of an incubator company within ourselves. We, we take these ideas and we'll experiment, you know, we'll pan around a little bit. Um, it's, it's called bioprospecting. You know, you try a few things, you, you know, get a lot of failures in the lab, but Hey, every now and then, you know, something works. And a lot of times it's serendipitous, you know, just, you notice something that you might've thrown away could, could turn into something very valuable for humanity, which I, I think is, you know, that, that's why I call for more observation in, in, in these classrooms. More time just spent watching stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, walk around any college campus. Sorry, I'm ranting Chris, but you got, you got, you know, walk around any college campus and as soon as the bell rings, well, even during class, everybody's texting under the tables and, uh, under the desks and any teacher will tell you that. And, and, and even in between class and so nobody's making eye contact, everybody's looking at their device and nobody's looking around at, uh, what nature's doing. And I think we're going to have a big problem if people don't start looking and observing and adding to the body of the science, if we're not just paying attention because nature is revealing itself. It's done that to me many times in the past few years. And I just happened to be there to catch a glimpse of it, you know, and, and fungi are fast, you know, the body of the fungus are there in the ground and the mulch and, they only show themselves as a fruiting body or a mushroom for a couple of days out of the whole year. And if we're not paying attention, we're not going to be able to see them. You know, we're not going to be able to make that connection. And, you know, I, I wish that upon everybody. I, I, I wish that uh, everyone had that, I guess, interest and desire to just kind of walk in the woods and get to know mushrooms more and, and just grow a few, you know, grow a few mushrooms on the side for you, your, your family or your neighbors or start a commercial operation. It doesn't matter, you know, just, but just get to know mushrooms at a more personal level 
would be my wish. So, Trad, uh, at the end of the show, we always like to do a lightning round of questions with our guests. So, you ready for the lightning round? Yeah, I got a buzzer. Ready? There it All is. All right. <laughs> I like it. What's your favorite tool on the farm? Favorite tool? Um, I the, probably the thing something that we made. It's a um, it's a paddle, and um, it didn't make it into the book. And I, it'll definitely be in the next edition. But it's a paddle. It looks like a fraternal paddle. Uh, like like fraternities use, and it's a wooden paddle, but it has nails all over it, like uh, spikes. Uh, looks medieval, and we use that to hit or pierce bags so they can breathe. Uh, the oyster mushrooms bags, so it just makes tiny holes all over the bags without poking big holes, and so the bags can breathe, and the gnats don't get in. Uh, the fungus gnats, oh. and people have seen that, and they're like, "That has saved my life in a commercial operation." So. The needle paddle has got to be the, the best tool that I have. And and those are the holes that you're punching in there just for the air circulation, not for not for the fruiting bodies to come out of. Right. I, I go back later and just put um, a couple slits in, just a few holes, you know, a couple on each side around the bags. But that's really saved a lot. And in, in fact, that uh, I took the paddle home by accident uh, to show somebody at the house, and I left it there for one day. And I didn't paddle these bags, so I told someone here at work, um, the production manager, I said, listen, can you um, just go ahead and put the knife holes in there so they can breathe? They should be fine. And that one batch now is full of fungus gnats and and little larvae. Um, And so it doesn't take long. And all the other ones are totally fine, even in the same room. No larvae, no fungus gnats. So. Uh, I'll never, I'll never not paddle again. Uh, once, <laughs> once they, once they uh, colonize the bag, they're resilient. But the fungus gnats got into this batch of pink oyster bags, and they're just having a field day. You know, just reproducing, and um, so we're, we're organic. You know, we don't spray, so we just try to use. Um, you know, we try to limit the movement of bugs, and if you if you limit the movement of bugs, you minimize molds and other things. So. It's a very simple solution. Let me ask a question about the about the organic thing. Are you guys certified organic? We are not. Um, we're actually okay. getting certified. I've got most of the paperwork filled out. I think all of it. Um, we're having difficulty locating some of the supplements and grains that are organic, and they're very, very expensive. So we're having to kind of switch our formulas around and um, – we're trying to breed. We've got some new strains of mushrooms that don't need as much supplementation or grain at all. So it's really just a breeding program here where we're, we're trying to grow exclusively on just sawdust. And it may okay. take a little bit longer, you know, for the mushrooms to fruit, but that's okay. Um, we, I'm actually on the committee or the board for the certified naturally grown. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I am. Yeah, so I am on the board for that committee. It's a new program that should, it may be out this fall, and we've been having meetings all uh, spring and and summer, and I think we're we're pretty close, and it's very similar to the organic program, but not as costly or as um, prohibitive, so um, I'll definitely be that certified because I'm, you know, we're setting the standards, but I still have to use organic material. And that would include the substrates that you're growing on. So, like, if you're doing oyster mushrooms on straw, then it's got to be certified organic straw. Exactly. Yeah. And, got it. And so um, that's one of the challenges. And, and that, that's why I would encourage anyone who's, and 
um, wants to be a mushroom grower who's already growing crops or straw is to make that transition. I mean, we have property now. I mean, I, trust me, I, I, I think in circular systems, I would love to just contract out or find some property and, and grow straw just for us, you know, just so I know that we have it because it's hard to find. Okay. That's, that's the, that's the, going to be the next big thing in South Carolina for the organic farm movement is uh straw for trad straw somebody or hemp. And we're actually growing on hemp. Uh, we've, uh, just cultured some hemp yesterday. Um, some waste, some, it's like hemp bedding. And I bought a couple bales and, uh, we're going to be publishing a paper on, uh, growing mushrooms on hemp waste. So that should be out by January. All right. And what's, what's your favorite crop to grow? I mean, and you can't just say mushrooms. No. Like what get, you know, getting specific about it. What specific mushroom do I like the best? Um, yeah, if you if you could only grow one mushroom, what would you grow? Jeezery. that's trying to like pick a favorite child. That's not fair. And um, <laughs> we won't tell them. I, I know. That's a good thing I'm not in the fruiting room. Um, God, that's a difficult situation. And I had all the mushrooms I have. I mean, the I think the most rewarding is the oyster mushrooms. Um, and, but I'm going to have to go with something tropical because it's, it's such a cool mushroom. It's called a patty straw and it only fruits for us like two months out of the year. And it's a tropical and it, it only fruits above 90 degrees. And so not everybody will get to grow this, or you can only grow it a couple weeks out of the year uh, in cooler right. climates. But the fascinating thing about this mushroom is that, uh, it, it's a great edible but it, it fruits in four to seven days. And to me, that's when we're, we're looking back at how this conversation has unfolded, how people talk about magic mushrooms all the time. That is, that's gotta be the most magical mushroom on the planet for something that's a microbe to use its chemical keys. When you plant it in like cotton waste or something like that, and it sweats out the keys and then, disassembles that cotton waste and then it puts it back together in the form of a mushroom in four to seven days. I don't get it. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty amazing turnover time. That's amazing. And, and even the oyster mushrooms, I mean, those are fascinating. And, and see, that was one of my first choices because they're fast. That is amazing. And that's why they're such a pleasure to grow. I mean, I love shiitakes. I love all these others. And Every new mushroom is exciting for me to try to grow because I have to figure it out. But nothing can beat the, the idea that this fungus can break down this organic matter and then reassemble it back into a huge edible mushroom in as little as four days. Is It defies logic is what it is. And that's why I like to think of like a mushroom is because how, how can they possibly do that? And, uh, that's what keeps me fascinated about fungi is just a mushroom like that, um, doing what it does and, uh, it's selfless, you know, it just does it because it has to do it. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning mushroom farmer self one thing, what would it be? Well, don't get a nicer car <laughs> then, <laughs> but, uh, uh, appreciate the, the Hyundai, but I would, I mean, I would, I had no idea what I was getting into. Nothing. I mean, I, I thought that it was going to be just a job 
right there. But if I was to come back as like a apparition or something and a ghost and tap myself, I would probably say, you have no idea what you're getting into. So, you know, like hang on for the ride would be my lesson or, or talk to myself. And, uh, I don't want to you know, give myself any advice. Like, well, just, Hey, just stick with it. Cause I've, I've kind of kept with it. You know, it's been on and off until I managed to make a living doing this. And a lot of people tell me to give up and sell my lab equipment and do all that stuff. So I would probably say, just don't let anybody tell you not to, you know, just follow that passion and, and stick with it and something good will come out of it. And, but not to give away the secrets to my early self, <laughs> but um, just to keep that interest and passion. I like that. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, I can't believe it. it's evolved into that. Um, that one tap on the, that one tap on the car might not have seen this brand new medical breakthrough that everybody can benefit from. You know, that's like the butterfly effect people talk about. It's just weird. And I'm sure that happens all the time, but I'm still not used to it. I'm very humbled by what's happened here. And, you know, I go on tour all the time and none of this is going to my head because it, I, I don't think it can. Fungi are always there to remind me that they're in charge. You know, we're not in charge, <laughs> but we need to find out what they're doing and, and uh, keep the party going. It's great. Trad, it's been a lot of fun talking to you today and I, I feel like I've learned so much more. I'm, I'm about ready to go see if I can find a bale of straw and, uh, and get something going in the basement here. Um, if people want to find out more information about mushroom mountain, where would they look for that? Um, you can go to mushroommountain.com, all spelled out. That's our website. I'm um, also, um, look on the events. We've published most of, I am, uh, since the book came out and we we'll, should mention the book, it's, I am, uh, being called to conferences everywhere in the country now. So mostly on the East coast, but I'm getting out to the West coast. Uh, travel cost is a, um, is one of the barriers, but if anybody yeah. wants me to speak, um, at a conference or a club or anything, it's, you know, it's just the cost of me getting there. Um, uh, and, and the book is a big help. So the book is, a uh, organic mushroom farming and micro remediation. That's a, a Chelsea green publication. And, uh, and it's a, it's a great book. It's, I know uh, I mean, it, I, it turned out good and I'm <laughs> totally unbiased, but it is, uh, the publisher did an amazing job with me editing everything. Uh, I turned in 200,000 words and we distilled it to 150 and it's a cover to cover read. And, and um, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Goodness. I mean, the, the, the full color pictures in it of the, of just the, the various mushrooms and the other activities around them are just fantastic. Yeah. And most of them are pictures by, um, Olga and myself. And, you know, we, we take pictures of everything meticulously because that's part of the observation is doing that. And to be able to share that, all those pictures, and you're, you're getting 22 years of mushroom uh, cultivation experience distilled into that 300 pages. And there's a lot of images because I'm a visual presenter. And when you do see me present, like you might remember, there's very little text, right? So very nice. It's, it allows the reader or... Um, person who's watching to just sit back and absorb and, and learn like a mushroom does, you know, that's how they eat. 
is just to sit and absorb and observe. And it starts out very slow, and it just ramps right up into the more advanced stuff a little bit later on. So it doesn't – a lot of other guides start with laboratory construction. Well, I don't, I don't think that's a smart strategy is to tell someone in the first chapter or two is to, hey, you know, this is how you construct a lab. You know, most people can't do it or don't have the money. Um, so I suggest just start with some spawn, you know, start, start a little mushroom garden. Learn from that and then then work your way up. Trad, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. All right. Thank you for everyone for listening. And if you need help, just let me know. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 30 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Cotter. That's C-O-T-T-E-R. Hearing loss is cumulative, which means that you lose a little bit of your hearing each time you expose yourself to noises that are too loud for your ears. And because I want you to be able to listen to this podcast for years to come, I want to make sure you've got your ears protected while you are out doing your fall tractor work this year. And if you can listen to the podcast while you're doing it, that's all the better. My favorite solution for listening to audio while doing work that requires ear protection is the Peltor 2600N noise isolating earbuds. They do a great job of keeping the loud sounds out and the good sounds in. And because they stick right in my ear instead of going over my head like larger on-ear models, I can still wear my Shady Brady straw hat, keeping my head cool and my skin healthy while I'm protecting my hearing at the same time. Plus, if you go through farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash earbuds to get a pair, it helps to support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. And if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. I'd also like to know what guests you'd like to hear on the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything or anyone about farming and farm life is fair game. Keep weathering the weather, be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.